Brian Conaghan was born in Scotland, but now lives and writes in Dublin. For many years, he worked as a teacher in Scotland, Italy and Ireland. Brian has written a number of award-winning children's and young adult novels, including The Weight of a Thousand Feathers, which won the 2018 Irish Teen and Young Adult Book of the Year. His latest novel, Cardboard Cowboys, is the story of 12-year-old boy Lenny and his friendship with an older man called Bruce, focusing on personal troubles that are affecting Lenny and his family. Nicky Gamble spoke recently to Brian and asked him to start by telling us about his main character of Lenny. Okay, well, Lenny, Lenny's a 12-year-old boy who is making a transition from primary school to secondary school. And like many 12-year-olds, he finds the transition very, very difficult. And he becomes the font of the, the bullies at his school. And it's, not, it's nothing physical that Lenny experiences. It's all kind of emotional bullying. Um, and he's tormented by his school experience. Uh, he doesn't get much help from his teachers either because he kind of suffers in, in silence like many, many people do in school environments and beyond. And one of the reasons that Lenny's bullied is because of his physique. Um, and he's quite a large little kid. Um, and he struggles with that. He struggles with his, his sense of body image at that young age. And subsequently decides that he, the school environment isn't for him. So he... We, we in Scotland would say he dogs it. He plays truant. And that's where he meets the aforementioned Bruce and mm. they form that friendship. Mm. I was quite, quite interested. Um, a short quote from the book that really struck me was, um, it's obviously from Lenny's point of view, it's first person. And he says, it's hard being invisible, but much harder being visible. Yeah. And actually for many children, it's that being noticed is worse. Yeah, than being I mean, not noticed. I mean, I think Lenny has Lenny doubles down on that because he does suffer in silence, but he can't hide away from the fact that it's his his uh, physical characteristics that draws the attention to him. Mm. I think that's what he wants to do. He wants to be invisible. He wants to to get away from who he is physically, mm. and that, that's kind of the heartbreaking sense of who Lenny is. Mm. Because he can't hide in the in the back of the class, he can't hide in the margins, you know. Sticking with Lenny for a moment, um, he has a very distinctive personal voice, and I wondered how much of this is dialect. Because I'm not from Glasgow, <laughs> how much of this is dialect? How much of it is idiolect and the sort of voice that you found for him? I mean, he talks about things like slapping his blazer, and I, you know, you get a real sense of what he's doing. It's interesting when you spoke about it being from Glasgow because the book's set in a, in a town outside Glasgow. Coke Bridge is where I was brought up and, and now live. And it's very idiosyncratic. And people from Glasgow would know the differences between the people from Coke Bridge would speak and vice versa. So it's very esoteric and pinpointed to that town. But it's, it is dialectal, absolutely. I think just the cadence of how Lenny speaks is very much linked to that town. Isn't it great that we're still hanging on to this? I think it's important. I feel it's important because where you're from is your identity. It's a very powerful sense of who you are. And part of where you're from, obviously, in my opinion, is how you speak and how you come across. It's certainly important for me when I write characters and it's important for me personally, that sense of identity. 
Mm. And how much of it is Lenny? How much um, is it finding a voice just for this boy that makes him different from Trish Woods or any other of the characters in the book? Well, Lenny, Lenny's a kind of figment of imagination. He's a fictional character, but he's also very much my best friend as we were growing up, who was physically the same as Lenny, suffered horrendous abuse at school, and the way he spoke in his phraseology was he, the way he the way my friend uh, developed his survival techniques was through humour, and I tried to do that with Lenny. I tried to delve back into a past that I know and is very clear to me, and infuse Lenny with that. Mm-hmm. And my friend sadly passed away a few years ago and I always wanted, I always knew that as a writer I wanted to tell his story, to put his emotion through in a book because what he suffered at school was was appalling. I mean it deals with school and it deals with family. As you've mentioned school, perhaps we'll, we should talk about school next because you've been a teacher as well yeah. and you'll have seen this from the other side and how difficult sometimes it is to deal with those things i guess since when i started school and i taught for a, over a decade and when i finished teaching the kind of rules of the classroom rules have changed and your ability as a teacher to intervene had changed as well i always felt that there was something of an undercurrent that was more dark at play so there was a lot of cases that you just saw kids and you knew they were suffering and uh, i felt powerless to help there's quite a, a lot actually in this story about not only the powerless of an individual to help, but somehow society not having the right tools to yeah. deal with people that really need help. Yeah, and I think I think schools schools that microcosm of that a reflection of society, and at times schools don't have the tools to help. Mm. But also, I understand that I'm writing from a perspective of, of memory. So my memory of a school as a school kid is from the 80s. But it's a very, very different environment. And now that I know as a teacher, it's a much more caring, holistic environment from the one I went to. So I kind of have to try and separate one from the other. And in this book, I, I wanted to be that 80s school. You know, for example, I heightened up the, the aggravation from the teachers that Lenny suffers, or the sheer ambivalence from teachers. Now I don't think you would get that in schools. Before we talk about Bruce, Mm -hmm. obviously really important character in this story, I also want to talk about the family. And there's something going on in this family, which we do uncover or we do discover later, but it's all subtext, really, at the beginning. Yeah. And I was fascinated by your dialogue. If it was a play... I think it would be a Pinter play because there's this dialogue and everything is going on under the surface. I'm just so fascinated in, in the a, writing of that. <laughs> a, I've got to say that's a huge compliment, Nikki, because I'm a, I'm a big, big Pinter fan and also Samuel Beckett. I like the positive language that they use, but it says so much, you know. There's so much bubbling in the, under the surface of it. I think, I w- first and foremost, I'd like to say that the family are good people. They're a good family, and they're a caring family and a loving family. I think what happens to Lenny's brother would damage many families. And, th- and this is what I wanted to, to achieve. 
I wanted the family to shift focus from Lenny and his problems and shower it on his brother and his problems. Mm. And I wanted Lenny to really want to be attached to his father. As you do, as you're a, a young kid and you look up to your dad or your uncles or whoever that male figure would be, you want to walk in their footsteps. And I wanted Lenny to do that. Lenny's father's a truck driver. And I wanted Lenny to want to be a truck driver and spend time with his dad. But also... I wanted the, the relationship with his mother to be one that is really, really loving, but also quite realistic. Kids do fight with their parents. Kids do disagree with their parents. They're not taken to the shops all the time. They don't get what they want. It's, it's eat your dinner and get out of my sight. And just because you're focused on the bingo card in that moment doesn't mean you don't care. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's just ordinary. That's it. It's just, it's it's ordinary. So. One of the things we've already said is that Lenny truants and he has a favourite place that he goes to. It's a bench by the canal. It's his kind of timeout space. Yeah. At the beginning, he throws some, it's an iron brew bottle. (laughs) It's an empty can of iron brew. Yes. And that's when he meets Bruce. So Bruce is homeless and he lives by the canal bank and the two of them develop um, a relationship. Can you introduce Bruce to us from your point of view? Well, Bruce is in his early 50s and he's a complex man. And this is when I started coming up with a character of Bruce. Again, he was an amalgam of many male figures in my life, one being my my own father. But he's a complex man, but he's a kind man. He's a kind-hearted man. And he's, he's homeless due to circumstances beyond his control. And the reason I wanted to talk about homelessness in that sense is because I want to dispel the myth that everybody who's homeless or finds themselves homeless are all alcoholic drug takers and violent. And that is anything but the case with regards to Bruce. And I think that the homeless issue at the time of writing was was rife in, in Dublin, where I was living at the time. Um, and it was a lot of circumstantial issues people losing their jobs subsequently losing their homes and it's a kind of house of cards effect and suddenly you find yourself as Bruce has living in a cardboard box in the side of a canal now if I'd have written that book maybe 15-20 years ago that would that idea the very notion of that would have been incredibly far-fetched but it's not now there are a couple of things that you say about the homelessness that I thought were really so important one of them is Lenny imagining what it would be like to go a whole day without a decent chat I think one of the biggest emotional killers in our world is loneliness and somehow we think that we need to offer things we need to offer money we need to offer a coffee or something sometimes and and I'm now very strongly realizing this about myself what we need to offer is time and I think that's the beauty of Lenny and Bruce's relationship, that both of them probably don't realise it in the first instance they meet, but what they want to offer each other is time. And there is a wonderful moment, actually, where Bruce later says to Lenny that he's brought joy into his life. It's quite yeah. unexpected, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's this idea that how can a 12-year-old bring joy into this 52-year-old man's life? But that, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's the conversation, it's the presence, it's the it's the chat. Another thing, just sticking with the homelessness theme for a moment, but something else that I think is so important. Um, there's there's a moment in the story where 
Lenny considers going into this makeshift housing that um, Bruce has put together for himself by the river. And then he starts reflecting as to whether that would be considered criminal breaking and entering. Yeah. And actually it would be okay to burn that down. Nobody would bat an eyelid, but you can't set fire to your school. Yeah. And it just shows that it's, it's, really taking away people's rights to be people? Well, it takes away their right to exist. It takes away their right to have shelter and it takes away their, their agency. I remember writing that section, actually, and I thought, well, what is it? I mean, this guy has built his own house. Now, it might not be the same idea that you and I have about what shelter is, but he's got his worldly possessions in that shelter. And if somebody decides to knock it down or burn it down or open it and steal his stuff, it probably wouldn't be regarded as a crime. And that's that's the kind of dichotomous world I think that we live in because some people count more than others. Let's talk a little bit more about the relationship sure. between the two of them. Again, another big theme that it hits on is how hard it is for us today to have friendships across generations without yeah. them being perceived as somehow predatory or unnatural. Well, absolutely. You know, and it's, I just think sometimes sometimes we look at our world and our society with these incredibly negative, suspicious tones about it, you know. But what I wanted to do, and I really wanted to strongly achieve this, was forget their ages, let them be people, let a friendship or a bond exist through their personality. Now, I understand that, and I'm not naive enough to, to realise that you're you're hitting treacherous ground at times, you know, especially because they spend so much time together in confined spaces at one point they're in a hotel together. And you've got to be really, really responsible and sensitive to the situation. Mm. And I had written a chapter that I thought was tackling it, but what it was doing was it was it was shining a light on that negativity and that suspicion. Mm. And I didn't want that to happen. It's interesting as a reader. It didn't even cross my mind until I got to the scene at the Premier Inn. Again, it's subtext because Bruce is uncomfortable and he doesn't quite know what to do. And I've just got a little quote here, which was so beautiful. And this is Lenny says, I reach out to him, almost going to rest my hand on his, give him a comfort stroke, hand on hand. He sees nothing of this. I decide At the last second, not to touch him, my hand falls and I hear him inhale breath. And you can just see that scene from the outside, what people would make of it, but you know it's not like that. Well, this is the point because that scene in the hotel comes relatively late in the book and that's really important to put it in that position because by the time a reader gets to that position, you're thinking, this is nonsense, you know. These are just mates, you know, this is utter nonsense. So the threat that Bruce could impose from the early chapter that he's in gets receded and chipped away at. And when we're at the end of the book, I hope that I want a reader to go, no, I want these two guys to always be together and to to always keep doing things together. So Bruce is aware of his responsibility. And although we don't know, he keeps Lenny's parents informed of their friendship. I think it was the whole uh, spectrum of of that idea of this relationship between a young and an older person 
And it's it added to the sense of responsibility. You know, given that young people will be reading this book as well, I thought, along with my editor, I felt that that was an important element to put in. The, the parents were always aware of that situation happening. Always the adults are in charge. Always the parents know exactly what's happening. And it's just putting those little sections in that, that enables a younger readership to understand that. Lenny does have another friend. He has a friend at school, yeah. Trish Woods, who's very empathetic. Um, in view of what you've said, there might be a bit bit of you in, in that character. But I wonder whether she was there from the beginning to kind of balance out that. Is it, yeah. Was it important for him to have a friend of his own age, I suppose? Yeah, it's got, absolutely. And, and I think if I was writing a book again, I would put more of her in. I would put more of that, that friendship between the two of them in. Because while you're writing about all the, the negative qualities of school, there's a lot more positive. And Trish just symbolises that positive energy and that caring and empathetic sense. And it's not, I mean, there's another thing, because it's a girl, I didn't want it to be any romantic friendship. I just wanted it to exist as a friendship. This story is a mystery because there is this brother who's there in the background, this older brother. Yeah. And we don't know really where, we just know he's gone. I mean, at first I thought he might be dead. Then I'm thinking he's left home. And all sorts of things that you're thinking could have happened as the mystery unravels. Tell us a little bit about writing that. That's my one and only attempt at writing a mystery novel. I think initially I wanted it to be more mysterious, but as you know, as somebody who's read it, as you, you can kind of guess where he is after a while. But again, it's like if, if I had to write it again, I might try and make that guessing element come in a little bit later. But I don't think it took away anything from the novel because I don't think that the focus is about the brother Frankie. Mm-hmm. But I think what I did want to do is I didn't want to reveal exactly why he was where he was. Mm. And I wanted to drip feed that information. So the important element for me was to drip feed it just before you you go and introduce the audience to that character, Frankie. I think it does also reveal that good people can do bad things and have to suffer the consequences of that. Yes, and I think that's it, because Frankie is almost deified in his in his home, isn't he? And certainly he's a heroic figure to Lenny. Uh, he's a classic big brother, you know, he's good looking and he's got muscles and, and he's popular. He's everything Lenny's not, but he's also everything Lenny's not because Lenny's not where Frankie is. But there's a redemption for Frankie because... While he made a mistake, he made the mistake in good faith. He made the mistake trying to do a good thing. Have you had the opportunity? It's been a strange year in which this book was published. (laughs) And you've not obviously been able to do the whole round of events and getting out to meet young readers. Um, And I don't suppose you've had much opportunity to do that. But I'm interested to know the kinds of response that you've had from readers and what sorts of questions they've asked you. I think this the questions that they tend to ask is, uh, is Lenny me? Is it my experience? Am I Bruce? Why did you choose to write that relationship between a homeless man and a 12-year-old? Is this a book about homelessness? Is it a book about bullying? Or is this a book about body image, fat shaming? And I guess it's their interpretation of what the book is about. But like all my books, 
I don't write issue books. I just write books about people. And with the characters, I just chuck an obstacle in front of them. Well, certainly for me, it was the character and relationships and all of these things that are true for all of us as human beings, that there's always so much more going on under the surface than than we ever get to see. It was a, a thoroughly emotional read but an enjoyable one because his voice does have humour in it as well. Um, before we finish completely, I just realised I was going to ask you to read. Do you have something that you've been reading when you do your school events? I do, yeah. It's the very first instance when he goes to school. I mean, we never spoke about the haikus and Lenny's, Lenny learns what haikus are and he starts writing haikus to express his emotion and express some of the deeper thoughts that he has. And the book is dotted with, I don't know how many, maybe 10 or so, I don't know, haikus. Absolutely. How could I have missed the haikus? I mean, I didn't miss the haikus, but we didn't talk about the haikus. I love, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big poetry fan. I love poetry and in a lot of my books, I put some poetry in it. And I think it's also this is this is just my being my bonnet about working class men that working class teenagers are not all about drinking and antisocial behaviour. There's a lot of that world that is interested in books and poetry and music and mm. as I was when I was growing up and all my characters are the same. All my all my milk. I wonder who I'm writing about. Interesting. Anyway, you're going to read for us. I'm going to read. Yeah, it's the first book. It's called Bench. This is a scene where Lenny goes to his bench. This is just a wee short reading about his introduction to the haiku in school. Imagine being trapped in a world with everything you hate. Picture how that makes you feel. Well, that's school for me. So, the day in English, Lee McAvoy caught me fat, so sometimes he swallowed a dictionary and says chunky, other times blubber. But fat so's the main one. Teachers have never called me it, but I know the word pinballs around in their brain. I caught Mr Sutton, the PE teacher, giggling his head off when I was playing dodgeball once. Our English teacher, Miss Kane, she's quality though. Before the fatso abuse, she told us what a haiku poem was. So, with haikus, you tend to do a lot of syllable counting on your fingers. Then she did a wee syllable rap demonstration to show what she meant. It was supposed to be dead funny. Nobody laughed. Except me. Inside. Mouse! Liam McAvoy thrown up his hand. Yes, Liam. What kind of sad maddie writes poems? He then chucked his pencil, which could have speared my eyeball. This made people laugh. She read my poem at her desk and kept me behind to say, if you ever need to talk about anything, you can always come to me, you know. She shoulder squeezed me while saying it. It's mad weird when a teacher touches you. My poem was called The Future. Here is what I think. People like me won't find love. I will not be found. By Lenny Lambert. Afterwards, Miss Kane wrote amazing stuff in my jaw and big ticked the beauty underneath. It's funny how one little red pen flick can make you feel all snugly inside. But that feeling was taken away in a flash. Outside the window, I spied Liam McAvoy scratching a line across his throat and Grace McKenna inflated her cheeks and gave me the bad word finger. 
But then Trisha Woods passed and smiled at me. Not a teethy showy one, but still a smile. It happened so quick that I didn't have time to return mine. I was really gutted about that. Mm. Just one final question, really. When you were an English teacher, did you teach poetry? I did, yeah, yeah. I always started my first years with haikus mm. and gave them little tasks to do. And, I mean, they liked it. They they liked it. I love the haiku, actually. But I love teaching poetry. I, that was one of the, the things that I really looked forward to when I was in my class. When it's really well taught, you see amazing responses to poetry. Unfortunately, you know, we've, we've destroyed it in many ways, you know, because we're telling our kids, you must get meaning out of this. You must, not only you must get meaning and understanding, but you must write a 600-word essay on it. And that kills your connection with it. I mean, I think I used to say to my, my students, you know, tell me how this makes you feel. Why does it make you feel that way? Mm. How does it make you feel that way? You know, what emotion are you getting from it? And the wonderful thing about poetry is, or any literature, there's no right and wrong answer. Interpretation is 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 the right answer. You know, you know it's so interesting. I was I was talk as well um, when I'm working with teachers about encouraging children to feel aloud rather than yeah. just think aloud, and how it takes away that anxiety because in in telling them they've got to interpret and make meaning from something, they're always worried whether they're right or wrong. But yeah. you can't be wrong with a feeling because exactly. it is how you feel. Exactly. I think the starting point should be when you're talking and reading poetry, take all pencils and pens away. You know, the starting point should just be a discussion. How does it make you feel? What bits did you like? Why did you like that? You know? Well, we've gone from talking about your book, Cardboard Cowboys, and now we're into completely revolutionising the education curriculum. <laughs> Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Brian. Thank you so much for joining me from Dublin today. Thank you very much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.